Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. Mr. Taylor is away on assignment this week, so this time around it'll just be me, Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and I am recording this week's show on Monday, October 10th, 2022, which, depending on which calendar you use, is either Columbus Day, Indigenous People Day, or World Mental Health Day. It's all the same to you folks, especially given what a stressful time this past week has been for Richard Linklater and the crew over at Cartoon Network. I'm going to go with World Mental Health Day, okay? As you might guess, there's a lot of animation-related news this week, so why don't we just get to it? And as always, the news portion of this week's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. So, let's get started with explaining why Richard Linklater has had a bad week. I know it's still early in October, which means in theory that we are still months away from award season, But that's not actually how things work out in Hollywood. If you want your film to be considered for an award, like, say, an Oscar, you actually have to submit it for consideration months in advance. And that's what Richard did with his Apollo 10.5, A Space Age Childhood, which you'll recall Mr. Taylor was very enthusiastic about. This animated feature used a lot of rotoscoping as it told the tale of a young boy recalling the 1969 moon landing and then imagining himself traveling there. Apollo 10.5 was highly praised when it premiered at South by Southwest back in March of this year, and and then went, went on to become available for viewing on Netflix the following month. But despite the fact that nearly 200 animators, both in Austin and Amsterdam, worked on this 2D film, The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, uh, especially the folks in that organization that decide which animated films then get considered for the full-length animated feature, which then, uh, you know, then the best animated feature Oscar. They seem to have had a problem with the amount of rotoscoping that was used in pre-production of Apollo 10.5 because they rejected this film for Academy Award consideration, which... If you know your Disney animation history, is is kind of ridiculous. I know the studio hid for years the fact that much of the title character's performance in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was based on tracings of live-action reference footage that was shot of, of Marjorie Belcher, later, later March Champion, at the old Disney studios on Hyperion Avenue. But if rotoscoping was okay for Snow White back in the day, why is it now wrong for Apollo 10.5? The folks at Disney, especially back in the 30s, were really good at making footage that had initially been traced off of live-action reference footage look like it was actual animation. But a lot of the, the early work on Snow White, and let's be honest here, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and Sleeping Beauty did involve a variation on rotoscoping. And you can go to YouTube right now and watch a lot of that live-action footage which was shot for these Disney-produced animated features. And you can see for yourself how much of the performances of characters as you see in the finished version of these animated features are often beat for beat the same live-action performances that were caught on film prior to the start of animation. I remember talking with Art Babbitt back in the late 1980s. 
this had to be the spring of 87. It was just about the time that Walt Disney Animation Studios was about to put Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs back into theaters to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the creation of that film. And, and Art, he animated the Queen in Snow White. And, and while we were talking, the topic of, of rotoscoping came up. And I thought that Gulliver's Travels was largely dismissed by animation buffs today because there were so many scenes in that Dave Fleischer film where the rotoscoping was just a little too obvious. And Babbitt's response was, look, we did just as much, if not more, rotoscoping on Snow White as the folks at Fleischer did. The only difference is that Disney was better at hiding the fact. Walt insisted that any scenes that made use of live-action reference footage be loosely traced. That way, these scenes wouldn't then have that rigid quality that, that so much of animation that's been produced using rotoscoping often has. Of course, because Apollo 10 and a half is supposed to be a memory movie, it's about a little boy recalling the Apollo moon landing in 1969, the use of rotoscoping was actually an artistic choice on the filmmaker's part. This animated feature, based on a, an actual event from American history, after all, so the use of rotoscoping was supposed to help ground this film in reality, and then, which would then make the little boy's flights of uh, uh, fancy when he he daydreams that NASA recruits him to go to the moon as well. They would make those parts of the film seem extra fanciful. Link later is appealing the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences decision, which currently bars Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood, from consideration of, of best animated feature Oscar. So let's see what happens there. Even from our current position in early October of 2022, next year is going to be a tough one for best animated feature consideration. I mean, if you think about the situation that Pixar is facing right now, they have to decide whether or not Turning Red or Lightyear is going to be that studio's Oscar entry. And by the way, again, if you have not yet seen this Angus McLean film, which is available for viewing on Disney+, Plus, uh, you're really missing out on a fun film when it comes to Lightyear. That, that's, they, they did a great job on that thing. Uh, mind you, I'm also hearing the same thing when it comes to Universal. They have to choose between Minions, The Rise of Gru, and then there's Puss in Boots, which is the DreamWorks film that doesn't debut in theaters till December 21st of this year. Now, mind you, both of these projects are sequels, which tends to limit their chances come award season. Of course, that could all change if The Last Wish racks up over a billion dollars in ticket sales at the Worldwide Box Office, which tends to force the folks who hand out those little golden men to sit up and take notice. But again, it's been such a crazy year for animation so far that the old rules no longer seem to apply. I mean, on the heels of the premiere of season four of Craig of the Creek, Cartoon Network not only announced that it would be renewing this uh, animated series for a fifth season, but that it was also ordering a preschool spin-off series, Jessica's Big Little World, as well as putting a Craig of the Creek, the movie, into production. Cartoon Network was planning on turning Craig of the Creek into a full-fledged franchise. Of course, that was before David Zaslav spearheaded the transaction which combined Discovery with Warner Media to create Warner Brothers Discovery. That, that was back in April this year. 
when Warner Media was spun off by AT&T, the new media conglomerate, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, found itself saddled with $57 billion in debt, which has forced Mr. Zavlas to make some rather controversial moves in order to try and pick quickly pay down that debt. We've, we've talked previously about what happened with uh, Batgirl, likewise Scoob Haunted Holiday, the most recent decision that seems to have come on the heel of let's try to, to get costs under control uh, was announced just this past week, and it comes at the expense of the Craig of the Creek franchise. This past Friday, it was revealed that Cartoon Network's previous order of a full season of Craig of the Creek and a full season of Jessica's Big Little World has been cut in half. Again, I know, lots of depressing news this week. So let, let's try to talk about something a bit more upbeat, like, have you heard about this Encanto experience that will be de debuting at Camp's Fifth Avenue location in New York City later this week? I, I, in fact, on Thursday, October 13th, to be exact. This interactive space will be based on last year's Academy Award winner for Best Animated Feature, Disney's Encanto. It's going to be staged inside of a 6,000-square-foot facility and will attempt to bring the family madrigals casita to life. Behind each of this attraction's magical doors, there will be secret passages, interactive magic, live music. Uh, for example, you'll be able to visit Antonio's rainforest room as well as Isabella's floral wonderland, not to mention Louisa's happy place. Admission tickets, which are up for pre-sale right now, go for $30 to $38 a piece, depending on the time of day you want to go in. These tickets entitle you to an hour-long visit in the Madrigal's Casita. New groups of guests will be allowed to enter, again, the 6,000-square-foot facility every 15 minutes. And the Disney Encanto Camp Experience opens every day at 9 a.m. with the last group of guests being allowed to enter the facility at 7 p.m. Also want to stress here, it's a limited run. This interactive ex exhibit, again, opens on October 13th and is currently slated to close on January 29th. And again, because it's Disney, you know there are going to be shopping opportunities. Uh, they're actually going to be located in the Encanto Town Square and also, with your ticket purchase, everyone gets to walk away with a family photo as a keepsake. And did I mention the sing-along? So, brush up on We Don't Talk About Bruno. The Disney Encanto Camp Experience will be located at 110 Fifth Avenue in New York. By the way, this is a few blocks away from where the old Disney flagship store. This opened back in June of 1996 on Fifth Avenue. And the story that the Imagineers put together for this retail destination was this was the elegant mansion that Mickey and Minnie always stayed in whenever they went to visit New York City. And, and what was kind of cool is the third floor of the store was supposed to be the mansion's attic. This is where the Disney villains hid on site. Sadly, that version of the Disney flagship store closed in December of 2009. The whole operation shifted over to Times Square to inside of that 20,000-square-foot Disney store, which opened there uh, in November 2010. Of course, if you can't get down to New York City before January to see the Disney Encanto camp experience, not to worry. 
just last week, Disney Animation Studios and Lighthouse Immersive, uh, those are the folks who did that amazing Van Gogh-themed immersive thing that's been traveling around the country since 2017 and has dazzled over 5 million people, putting you right in the middle of so many of Van Gogh's more memorable paintings. Anyway, Walt Disney Animation Studios and Lighthouse Immersive have teamed to create the Disney Animation Immersive Experience, which begins touring North America this December. There's a video out there right now. How many of you have been to Disney's California Adventure Park and gone down to the, I want to say it's the Magic of Disney Animation, uh, the facility in, in Hollywoodland? If you go into the central lobby uh, from which you can go off to do the Turtle Talk with Crush or the Animation Academy or that sort of thing, there are these giant screens that tower over you that cycle through concept art, animation, that sort of thing for a variety of Disney features. It's it's a very dazzling display. It's It's been one of my favorite elements of that theme park since California Adventure first opened in February 2001. And what it seems to be, the, the Disney animation immersive experience, it's that lobby space only writ large. I mean, it, you'll see images wash over the walls and, and you know, and the floor uh, from Tangled, Lion King, Frozen, Big Hero 6, Zootopia, the original Pinocchio. This traveling experience will have its world premiere at the Lighthouse Art Space in Toronto. That's in December of this year. Uh, before the Disney Animation Experience then heads south to with stops in Cleveland, Nashville, Detroit, Denver, Boston, San Antonio, Las Vegas, Minneapolis, and Columbus in the first four months of 2023. That's nine cities in just 17 weeks. So looks to be on average a, a just a 10-day stay in each of these cities. So you should anticipate that this is going to be a hot ticket. So it might be smart to sign up now for the Disney Animation Immersive Experience so that you can then get early notification as to when the tickets go on sale in your area. I actually did this earlier this afternoon. You just have to go to DisneyImmersiveOneWord.com and just give them their info, and, and you'll get on the list. Uh, and just so you know, the company already has plans to take the Disney Animation Immersive Experience overseas, with Tokyo already being announced as the first stop on this exhibit's overseas tour. And speaking of over the sea, I, in honor of Columbus Day, I thought, when we get back from this break, we'd then talk about the Mickey Columbus feature at that Walt Disney Animation Studios had in development in the early 1990s. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. People always ask me where I get the stories that I tell on this podcast, and I wish I could tell you something really exciting, but the hard reality is a lot of this info just comes from good old-fashioned research. I, just reading everything that I can get my hands on. Like, 
just recently I've been digging through Keith Scott's Cartoon Voices of Golden Age, 1930 through 1970. Now, Bear Manor Media just published this terrific two-volume set last month on, on September 18th, to be exact. And it's just chock full of, of interesting little stories about the folks who, who voiced so many of your favorite cartoon characters from Hollywood Golden Age. I had no idea until I read Keith's book that Bill Thompson, now that this is the guy who voiced the White Rabbit in Disney's Alice in Wonderland feature. Likewise, Mr. Smee and Peter Pan and, and my personal favorite, Jay Audubon Woodlore, the fussy little park ranger in all of those great Humphrey the Bear shorts from the 1950s. Bill Thompson actually got his start doing voices for animation at MGM, where he initially worked with Tex Avery, started in 1942 on a short called Blitz Wolf, which is kind of an outrageous take on the three little pigs, only in this case, the big bad wolf is also a Nazi. And then Mr. Thompson then went on to voice Droopy in countless shorts for that studio. So, and by the way, the, the voice of Droopy was based on the Wallace Whipple, Wimple character that Thompson used to voice on the long-running Fibber McGee and Molly radio show. Again, another fact I did not know until I read uh, Cartoon Voices of the Golden Age. Keith Scott did a great, great job on this book. This two-volume set's a trifle pricey. Amazon currently has the paperback available for $38. If you want to go hardcover, that's going to run you $48. On the other hand, there's a slight price reduction on Volume 2, that's $30 for the soft cover and then uh, $41.80 for the hardcover. But again, this is a killer reference book. So if you want a smart addition to your, your animation research library, go pick yourself up the two-volume set of Cartoon Voice of the Golden Age. And uh, if you've been listening to this show this past month, you know I've been doing a lot of traveling lately. But that said, I'm not sure when I'm going to make it back out to California. In fact, I'm... Uh, I'm beginning to sort of reluctantly realize that I'm not going to make it out in time to catch Disney's The Jungle Book, The Making of a Masterpiece. This ex exhibition, which is running at the Walt Disney Family Museum in their Diane Disney Miller Exhibition Hall through January 8th of next year, it features over 300 pieces of art that were used in production of that now-beloved 1967 Walt Disney Productions release. And what's especially intriguing about this exhibit is it was guest-curated by Disney legend Andreas Deja, who flat-out admitted that Jungle Book was the movie that he saw as a kid in Germany, which then convinced Andreas that he had to go to Disney Studios and become an animator. And... Mr. Taylor was lucky enough earlier this year to get out and see this exhibit and just he, he talked on the show about how wonderful it was. So that was why kind of realizing that I probably won't get out there. Um, that's why I finally just this past weekend ordered the, the exhibit catalog. Again, pricey, $60 plus $17.10 for shipping. But, but that said, it's still cheaper than a plane ticket. Of course, today, we have the option of traveling by plane. Back in 1492, or, or was it 1493? I always get confused which poem I'm supposed to remember here. Is it Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492? 
or Columbus sailed the deep blue sea in 1493. Whatever the case, if we look back to the late 1980s, early 1990s, the 500th anniversary of Columbus sailing to the New World was coming up. Hollywood noticed and Disney noticed. And starting in the the 1980s, after a long dry spell, more than a quarter century, actually, Disney decided that it was time for Mickey to get back up on the big screen. So in December of 1983, we got Mickey's Christmas Carol, an animated featurette that was released to theaters in a double bill with The Rescuers. By the way, that was the first time that animated feature had been re-released to theaters since its debut, or theatrical debut, back in June of 1977. Michael Eisner got his marching orders from the Bass Brothers to the effect of that there's a lot of property down in Florida you should be making better use of. Build some more theme parks, build some more hotels, and that sort of thing. But that wasn't the only resource that people were kind of after Michael about. You know, the whole notion of, hey, you should be doing more with Mickey Mouse. So starting in 1988, the company had a, a company-wide celebration of Mickey's 60th birthday. And as part of that effort, it was announced that Disney would continue the effort that was begun with Mickey's Christmas Carol, that they would begin producing a regular series of featurettes, roughly 20 to 25-minute long films, starring Mickey Mouse and the Fab Five, but dropping them into significant events so they could build a film around that. So the first of these, of course, was The Prince and the Popper. And it was released to theaters in November of 1990s, but it was attached to the Rescuers sequel, The Rescuers Down Under. So suddenly this is a thing. But at the same time, what they, they tried to do was make sure that this film also was tied to modern Disney. So, for example, if you watch that movie today, the guards at the castle are played by the weasels from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now, the second film in the series, with the notion that these would come out every two years, so they were looking at a, a release of November of 1992, which again, remember, that's the 500th anniversary of Columbus's uh, arrival in the New World. So the next installment of the series was supposed to be called Mickey Columbus, with the idea that Mickey, Donald, and Goofy would captain the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, the indigenous people that Mickey would encounter in the New World, they were supposed to be played by Chip and Dale, or at least there was one iteration of it. So not a huge population of folks. Um, meanwhile, Queen Isabella was supposed to be played by Minnie Mouse. And again, remember, the idea was you're supposed to do contemporary tiebacks to the more current Disney films. And while the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria were traveling to the New World, out on the open ocean, there was at least supposed to be one scene where they would have encountered uh, Ariel, Flounder, Sebastian, and King Triton. Even back then, in the late 90s or thereabouts, there were already concerns about the Columbus story and that it wasn't necessarily aging well. And so after a considerable amount of work, the, the Mickey Columbus project was tabled in favor of a, a, the third film that was proposed for this series. 
And that was Mickey's Arabian Adventure, which was basically a retelling of Aladdin and his magical lamp, only with Mickey in the title role. And that project then gets derailed as well when Disney's feature-length version of Aladdin, which had a very troubled production history and, and damn near came within inches of being completely shut down by Jeffrey Katzenberg in the early 90s, but that suddenly comes roaring back to life. So obviously, Disney would prefer to, you know, put the full-length feature out there, Aladdin versus Mickey's Arabian Adventure, so that gets tabled as well. And at this point, Walt Disney Animation Studios effectively gives up on the idea of, of producing any additional Mickey-themed featurettes and then begins exploring the idea of Mickey-themed shorts, which results in the August 1995 release of Runaway Brain, a short that was so controversial that, as Mr. Taylor pointed out in his terrific October 21st piece for Polygon, it's now hidden in the Disney vault, kept under tight lock and key. Anyway, if you want to learn more about Runaway Brain, I would really suggest that you chase down Drew's story over in Polygon. It's a fun read. And Speaking of um, Mr. Taylor and things he's done that are worth going out of your way to experience, if you are not listening to Drew's Light Diffuse podcast, folks, you are missing out on some truly amazing stories. By the way, we also have some other, if you're listening to Light the Fuse, we also have some other podcasts here that you might enjoy listening to. We, of course, have a Disney dish that I do with Len Testa. Uh, we have Marvel Us Disney, uh, which I do with Aaron Adams. Uh, likewise, we have uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Brian Gahn. So if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, Fine Tuning, but also Light the Fuse, uh, that would be helpful. If you're looking for us on social media, uh, Drew has uh, his Twitter thing, Drew Tailored, as in a tailored shirt. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. And I think that's going to do it for now. So thank you for listening. And Drew and I will be back soon. <laughs>